0: Hello all and welcome to Footy Time. My name is Johnny Raff, and we've just completed round ten in the AFL season. Round ten, nearly halfway. Where has that time gone? I don't know about you guys, but I just feel like this year's going a bit faster than the others. But anyway, we're getting very close now to seeing which teams are definitely going to be featuring in September. Which teams are still fighting out for places and obviously the teams that we know aren't going to play much more of a part, but there's still a lot to play for for a lot of teams, I think it's fair to say. And we're going to kick it off with a team that I think people need to look out for. We go to Friday night at Marvel Stadium where the Kelton Footy Club triumphed over the Sydney Swans. 102-87 to 87 by 15 points. And again, this Carlton side is proving to be... Pass all the challenges that are put in front of them they are eight and two now they are entrenched in the top four and it's becoming very difficult to ignore them not only with getting these results with their scintillating talent they've got on the field right now but also in spite of the talent that they're missing jack martin harry mckay mitch mcgovern luke parks mark pitnett zach williams all good players that the blues could use right now but they are missing yet this ship is still sailing on and it's not a little sailboat nope this is a full-on oil tanker ready to barge anyone out of their way i know a lot of people talk about uh the fade outs that carlton have and you know they do have some youngsters in their side still and it's hard to sustain these brilliant efforts for the whole four quarters and you could see on Friday night, they panned to the crowd a lot. I mean, they actually did it a little too much, if you ask me, um, where the Swans' comeback was on, and they would, uh, yeah, pan to the crowd and the nervous Carlton fans, and look, I, I don't mind a bit of that, and it was obvious that they were nervous, but I think Channel 7 went way over the top when they started uh, um, showing fans in the middle of, uh, of gameplay that was actually happening. I, I'm... An instance I'm thinking of is when there was a holding the ball free kick given to the Swans and they panned to this girl in the crowd with her head in her hands uh, (laughs) while they were about to take a set shot. And yeah, look, that's another thing altogether. But uh, the Blues fans had their relief at the end and good on them because it was a fantastic win over another very good side in the Sydney Swans. How far can the Blues go this year? Ah, look. I think the sky's the limit for the Blues. They are going to be limited by a few things, obviously. We don't think that they've got one of the absolute best offensive setups. But one thing that they do have is they have got the best ground ball game in the competition right now. Uh, They're number one in ground ball gets. And they've been doing it all year long. They always just seem to have numbers perfectly placed at stoppages and marking contests. Whether it's the front, the side... To the back, there's always a place for that ball to fall to. And it's a Carlton player there to get it. So this is something they've been doing all year. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of the Bulldogs last year. It's something that can get you pretty far. It catches teams off guard a lot. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think that they've got themselves a ticket. They've got themselves a lottery ticket in 2022. And people who are sitting there saying that they're pretenders. Look, we haven't seen them battle-tested against too many great sides this year, but I think most of the people who are saying that are scared of the Blues right now. <laughs> I think that they're going to be a very tough team to play for anyone from now until the rest of the season. So Michael Voss is definitely onto something there. Charlie Curnow takes number one spot in the Coleman middle race with dirty goals. He's having a brilliant season. It's amazing to see what he's doing. Uh, yeah, Still got Makai to come back. There's a lot to like there. There's a lot to prepare for once they have all hands on deck. So, yeah, I think watch out for the Blues. (laughs) The Western Bulldogs managed to get the chocolates at Mars Stadium in Ballarat over the Gold Coast Suns. That's their second win on the trot. And yeah, they're turning, looks like they're starting to turn the corner. The Suns, um, well, to be honest, I didn't see all of this game because I was at the North Melbourne and Melbourne game at Marvel, but uh, it, from what it seemed like, they were taking it to the Dogs for most of the game but just didn't quite have enough in the end. It looked like Took Miller was very well held. I don't know if they had someone go to him, but he finished the day with 19 possessions, which is kind of a little unheard of for, for Miller. Um, it seemed like the only real contributor from the Suns midfield was David Swallow, who had 25, and uh, from the parts of the game that I watched looked like he was the only one sort of giving him any sort of drive through the middle. So, yeah, Anderson... No, Anderson uh, was okay, but I didn't think he was... uh, didn't leap out off the page or anything. And just didn't quite get enough out of their midfield as as a whole, it looks like. Uh, Two quick points about the Dogs. Uh, Bailey Smith is... I believe, in all-Australian form. I picked my team after round seven. I chose Jordan Dawson from the Crows on that wing, which was a little bit of a contentious decision, but I thought at that point he deserved that spot. I think the second choice I would have had there was definitely Bailey Smith, and I reckon if I was choosing the team now, I'd be putting Bailey Smith in. His numbers are just too hard to ignore. Um, He's had multiple 30-plus possession games this year. Uh, I'd say he's had at least five or six. And he's just a nightmare matchup. I mean, he can be a little polarizing with the way he goes about his game, but when he's playing his game, there's no doubting he is just an absolute gun. And if you want to nullify him, you better have someone who has their running shoes because he will just run you into the ground. He's got to be one of the best runners in the competition. And he's just absolutely deadly uh, when he gets enough of the ball. So, I would have him on that other wing if the All-Australian team was drawn right now. I want to talk about someone else who I thought was really good for the Dogs in that game. When you're a good side with a good list, especially a team that's just made the grand final, you sometimes get guys who uh, had promising futures and were looking to stake a claim in that best 22. But they get pushed to a side... uh, You know, whether it's an injury or lack of form, uh, it's quite easy to get pushed aside and have to sit and wait for your chance again. I'm thinking about someone like Mitch Wallace early in the piece. I think the year that they actually won the Premiership in 2016, he had that pretty bad injury. And the Dogs have had a few injuries this year, but where these injuries have been the Dogs' loss, Ed Richards has made it his game. He's still only 22 And he's quietly had a good season. (laughs) It's just slipped under the radar. This game against the Suns was not only the best game I think he's played for the Bulldogs, but I think he was definitely one of the best players on the ground against the Suns. Uh, He's an interesting one. He started his career more as a a half forward, but he is relishing this move to half back. He uses it very well. 20 touches, 19 of them were effective, 14 intercepts. Uh, Yeah, he hits targets regularly. I think there's always a place in a team for a player like that. And he's got a bit of courage about him too. Backs into the pack. Really good to see. I think that he's going to be quite an important player for them in 2022 if the dogs are going to claw themselves back into a position, a challenge. We talked recently about what a big return Dustin Martin is for Richmond's chances this year. And there's no doubting that. But there's a guy called Dion Prestia that we need to have a little chat about too. He's had his issues with injuries, uh, but I'd say this was definitely his best game of the season on Saturday night. 36 possessions, 25 uncontested, 6 clearances. He's the Tigers' best two-way runner. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Works his ass off. I know we talk about Dusty and how his influence can really help the Tigers in the second half of this season. But there's no doubt this Tigers side is much, much better when Dion Prescher is running through the middle. I think that he just uh, they he helps them to run in numbers, give them options, forward the ball. Uh, this Tigers team was renowned for, I guess, uh, you know, getting it in quick and locking it in. They don't, probably don't do that quite as well at the moment, but it's still a cornerstone of their game. And players like this are going to very much help break the lines and get the ball into the 50 where they need it. So, yeah. I think he's a very crucial part to this Tigers uh, onslaught this year, and the Tigers have won three in a row, so yeah, watch out for anyone playing them. We'll stay with the theme of the Dreamtime game on Saturday night, and it is about the injuries that came from this game. It was a good win for the Tigers. They did what they needed to do. Got it done in a professional manner. There was a little bit of argy-bargy. Uh, Essendon were flying the flag a bit, which I think was a good thing, really. You know, wanted a response after last week, uh, but the Tigers didn't get too sucked into it and managed to get the job done on the evening. But I just wanted to touch quickly on the injuries that the Tigers had from this game. It looks like they're going to be without their spearhead Tom Lynch for at least a week or so, but I've got some serious concerns for another guy. He's been a massive contributor to ...for the Richmond Football Club in this successful period, and that is Kane Lambert. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physician, I'm not a surgeon... ...I'm in no way an expert in this area, but I do have some personal experience with serious hip injuries. (laughs) And while they aren't all the same, I probably know a little bit more than someone who's never had one, for instance. So, look, to bring you up to speed, over the pre-season, it was reported that Lambert was experiencing soreness in the hip area that wasn't improving after several weeks and some scans and there was talk that he would go under the knife for surgery. As I said, not an expert in this area and this area of the body is actually quite complex so I'm not going to get into talk about labral tears and spurs and the wide range of things that can happen there but the fact is that at the start of the year the Tigers were seriously weighing up the possibility of surgery for Kane Lambert which would have kept him out for at least half the year. A few weeks ago, Lambert returned in in Richmond's brilliant win over West Coast in Perth. And before that game, Channel 7 ran a quick bit just about his comeback. I mean, he is a three-time premiership player and a key player to have back. But I noticed that Richmond had decided not to go with the surgery route and went with some alternative methods. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of osteo, some dry needling, range of motion exercises, uh, anything they can do to free up the joint down there and that they would be managing Lambert's hip issues for the remainder of his career. They then showed a visual on the screen of what was happening in his hip joint and how cartilage had worn off, causing some bone-on-bone movement, which can obviously cause a lot of pain and other issues later in life. But my ears just pricked up at that moment. Had it had been any other sort of injury, like a knee or a foot injury, I might not have been as intrigued, but having had a similar experience, I just instantly had some doubts and felt that a player like this could be really up against it. Uh, as a 30-year-old male with time not exactly on his side if he took that route with managing his injury. Anyway, fast forward to Saturday night at the G and Lambert comes out of the game with a relapse of that hip injury. Now, this concerns me about his long-term career in the game. I had a lot of notes written down here about, well, really it was just a science lesson and drawing on my year 12 phys ed knowledge, but... uh, i would be going on and on. I just wanted to say shortly that when you're talking about cartilage, it's a you know it's a tissue that isn't regenerative. Um, maybe one of the only ones that doesn't regenerate in the body. And basically, once you lose it, you lose it. And that's why you end up with bone-on-bone uh, issues and um, all sorts of pain and arthritis later in life. So if you are going to alleviate the bone-on-bone pain, you, know, you usually have to go in for some kind of surgery, uh, like an arthroscope, where they end up reshaping the hip bone and things like that. Without knowing anything about his situation, I could be dead wrong, but I think that Kane Lambert could now be best served by going in for surgery, shutting down for 2022 and looking to 2023. I'm not saying that the alternative methods don't work, but the guy is 30 years old and he's one tough guy. There's no doubt about that. But if you were going to manage this for the rest of your career and if he is experiencing pain in that area repeatedly, it's a lot of pain to go through for the rest of a career, and you can obviously face those issues later in life. I think that just doing the surgery now can help with both. So, I don't know. It's just purely an opinion, as I said, but footy careers are short, and Kane strikes me as someone who's you know busted his backside to get here and lives for the game of AFL footy. This would be the smartest option to give him the best chance to keep it going, in my opinion. But as I said, I don't know a lot about the situation, and it could be something completely different. And if anyone knows anything or knows anything about this field, you know where to reach me. 40 22 at gmail.com I was at Marvel Stadium on Saturday evening to watch the North Melbourne Football Club take on the NAM Football Club, otherwise known as the Melbourne Football Club. And I had two key takeaways that I wanted to bring up from that game. First of all, the game wasn't very memorable at all. It was quite dour to start with. And North Melbourne really put up a good fight. They played with some good heart. They don't have the talent at this point in time, but they had a lot of heart, a lot of physical pressure. And yeah, they really took it to the Ds for at least three and a half quarters. They were definitely in this game. But the Ds in the end, a little bit too strong. And took out the contest by 47 points. But there's two things that I took away from this game. And the first one is the dangerous tackle by Terran Thomas on Ed Langdon in the first quarter. For those who didn't see it, the ball was in Melbourne's forward line. There was a contest. Ed Langdon leapt for the ball and his feet leapt the ground. And Terran Thomas executed a tackle on Langdon... Putting him to the floor and a free kick was paid for a dangerous tackle, which Ed Langdon then went back and kicked the goal. <sighs> i got an idea. Let's get out the old laws of Australian football for 2022, i.e. the AFL rules book. And let's see what we can find in there when it comes to what a dangerous tackle is. So, I'm not going to go through this whole thing. But we're going to find the first instance of where the word tackle is mentioned in this document. Okay, here we go. So, this is the definitions, interpretations and variations. uh, Definitions of what these terms mean. So, here we go. Legal tackle or legally tackled. This is on page 14. A tackle by a player where a the player being tackled is in possession of the football and B, that player is tackled below the shoulders and above the knees. For the avoidance of doubt, a legal tackle may be executed by holding, either by the body or playing uniform, a player from the front, side or behind, provided that a player held from behind is not pushed in the back. That's it. That's it. And if you're like me, that was the definition of a legal tackle since day dot, <laughs> since the time you first started following Aussie Rules footy. But let's see if we can find anywhere else. Is there anything else that talks about the dangerous tackle rule? Uh, this looks like it might be it. Prohibited contact 18.3. Free kicks for prohibited contact. A field umpire shall award a free kick against a player when that player makes any of the following prohibited contact with an opposition player. A. Executes a tackle that is not legal. In brackets, refer to the definition of legal tackle, which is what we just did. B. Pushes or bumps an opposition player in the back. C. Makes high contact to an opposition player, including the top of the shoulders, with any part of their body. D. Holds an opposition player who is not in possession of the football. E. Executes an illegal shepherd. F. Charges an opposition player. G. Trips or attempts to trip. An opposition player, whether by hand, arm, foot, or leg. H. Kicks or attempts to kick an opposition player. I. Kicks or attempts to kick the football in a manner likely to cause injury, otherwise known as kicking in danger. J. Strikes or attempts to strike an opposition player, whether by hand, fist, arm, knee, or head. K. Bumps or makes forceful contact to an opposition player from a front-on position when that player has their head down over the football. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen anywhere in this rule book where it says that the player being tackled needs to have his feet on the ground. Uh, for that matter, I also haven't found anywhere here that documents the sling tackle and what constitutes a free kick against the tackler when the heads hit the turf. I actually can't find that here anywhere, but... Case in point, there's no mention here of the player you've been tackling needing to have their feet planted on the ground. If Ed Langdon has made the choice to jump, then why does Terran Thomas, why does he have to be held accountable for that action? I just think that that's crazy. It did cost North a goal and yeah, it was pretty harsh. So I don't know. I'd like to hear, please explain during the week. Be highly unlikely we'll get one but uh i don't think that was a dangerous tackle at all uh, from taron thomas think it was it's perfect it's a physical game you know they're in the air he tackles him with a very what seemed to be a legitimate tackle got him to the ground that's it anyway the other thing i want to talk about from this game clayton oliver this guy rarely has a bad game He's averaging 34 possessions across the first 10 games this year. Nearly 9 clearances a game, 15 contested possessions, 4 tackles a game. I really think that the only thing preventing him from being mentioned more in the Brownlow conversation right now is a lack of goals. He's just got the one goal in 2022. And when you look at the other prolific midfielders in the competition so far... Paddy Cripps, 14 goals. Christian Petrarca, 9 goals. Lockie Neal, 6. I think we know when it comes to getting the Brownlow votes, there's plenty of high possession games, but it's the goal kickers as well that catch the attention of the umps. The goal-kicking midfielders. So I think if Oliver is to be a serious chance at this Brownlow, I think he needs to chip in with a few more of these. Um... his games have been amazing. He's always in the thick of it. He's always clearing congestion with those quick hands. He's, his ability to get his hands free is just unbelievable. I mean, he can be tackled around the waist, and he's all of a sudden just got his hands up over the top and, you know, keeping the ball moving. I love the way he accelerates out of the contest. He does this sort of U-turn thing. And he's just so much more elusive now. He's very hard to tackle and takes those few steps, launches a great kick. He has become such a super player. But I really do think for him to get the attention of the zone fires, he just needs to kick a few more goals. That's the bottom line. We love a good torp here at footy time. It's just one of the great pastimes of AFL footy. And was there anything better than Jeremy Cameron's effort at three-quarter time on Saturday against Port Adelaide? it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, players have really added the around the body kick to their repertoire. I just wonder if we're going to start seeing the torp become an element of the game more so. And, you know, guys practicing these after training or whatever. I think that that one, that Cameron kicked against Port, that looked a lot more skill than fluke. I thought he looked like he knew exactly what he was doing. And you know, other players might just look at this and think, well, you know, if this is a skill that can be improved, why not work at it a bit more? That's just my thoughts anyway. Um, you don't see too many left-footers kick barrels either. So <laughs> it was very impressive and it was on his weaker side. Uh, so this is just, yeah, yeah. This is what the game's about. Things like this gets the crowd going. The commentators were going nuts. It was just brilliant to watch. Um, I've said this tons of times before and i don't want to be a broken record about this and you know claim that i'm you know discovering the secret sauce to anything here but i've always believed that one of the key moments in a game of afl football a a real tightly contested game is the red time of the third quarter so when you go into time on and there's i don't know what five so minutes left five to eight maybe and say you've got i don't know a 10 point lead you know a two goal lead or something like that what happens i reckon from time on in the third quarter to three quarter time more often than not it sets the tone for the rest of that game we often hear that the third quarter is the premiership quarter well i think in terms of setting yourself up if you've got a lead in a game what you do in that period is crucial if the score on is like i said something like you know 10 points uh, and nothing happens for the rest of the quarter. It's, it's or there's it's seesawing. There's a couple of goals this way, that way, and you're ending up with a very tight margin at three-quarter time. Well, it's going to be a really good game, but if you can somehow kick away a little bit from that ten-point lead, if you can add one or two goals, and you end up twenty-two points in front, for instance, that just changes the complexion of the game tenfold. I just I don't think that there's any other period of a game of footy that can almost be a multiplier effect for what happens for the rest of the game. And I just think that if you do that, you know, if you kick like two or three in a row from that position, 10 points up with, say, yeah, five minutes to go in the third quarter, you, know, you end up with a 28-point lead. That's nearly five goals. And that's a hard lead to reel in. I just feel like that is one of the key moments in a game. And look at Geelong on Saturday. That was a tightly contested game. Then Stengel managed to kick a beauty with about a minute to go, and then Jeremy Cameron gets the ball in his hands on three-quarter time and just ticks that amazing torp. That's two goals. Two goals in the last few minutes of the third quarter. Turns it into a 26-point lead. Brilliant. So don't underestimate that period. I'm actually not annoyed, but I'm actually surprised that no one ever talks about this. (laughs) So yeah, I think it's a very crucial time of the game. And obviously there's other crucial times of the game, like the start of the fourth quarter and, or you know, the dying minutes of a game. But I just feel in a tight game, if you want to get some breathing space, that is the most crucial time of the game. You, you know, you you go in at three-quarter time, you go into your huddle, you've stopped. The game has stopped for the moment. You've got more time to think about it and ruminate on it. I think it's uh, there's much more belief in that huddle if you're only two goals down as opposed to... Four or five goals down. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Do you agree? Do you disagree? 40time22 at gmail.com It's your lucky day, Matt. We're finally at the segment you've been waiting for. And that is the three best key forwards of the last decade and a bit. And why Jack Rewalt is the best. Now... We've done our best to get this segment together. Uh, I just want to quickly mention there are a few caveats with this. I've had to rename this segment. Um, It's going to be more like the three best key forwards that aren't named Lance Franklin. So, yeah, we haven't got Buddy in here because he's probably far and away the best uh, of any forward in the last 15 or so years. But anyway, we've decided on three forwards and uh, I'm going to take a guess at what I think the three forwards that Matt was thinking about were. Um, We've got these three right here, and they are, in fact, Jack Rewald, Tom Hawkins, and Josh Kennedy of the West Coast Eagles. Uh, I had a little bit of a thought about (laughs) including Taylor Walker up in this list, because I think he's been a fantastic forward for a long time, but I'm going to get into the reasons why I haven't included him in here. Uh, We're going to go through the stats in a second and everything. And I think after we do, no disrespect to Taxi, but you will see why we have gone with the three that we've chosen. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at this stat sheet that I've tried to compile from these three players and their careers. We're going from the period of 2010 to 2022. I just thought I'd make that clear. Don't get annoyed if I don't mention... A players totals goal tally in their whole career because uh yeah we're only going for that period we've also gone with what we think are the key stats to measure a key forward success marks kicks goals conversion rate uh when it comes to conversion rate we're only going off the goals and behinds here because out on the fools a little bit hard to get on that stat uh i'm sure it's available but yeah it's definitely not available for this whole period Uh, And possibly not even that accurate. So we're just going with uh, uh, goals and behinds. Also, contested marks, marks inside 50, Coleman medals, all Australians, and lastly, premierships. Let's get stuck right into it then. Starting with Jack Rebolt. 265 games, 671 goals, 393 behinds, 1,064 total shots. He averaged 2.53 goals per game. He has a goals to behind ratio of 63.1%. 1,423 marks, 444 contested marks, 858 marks inside 50, 206 goal assists, three common medals, three All Australian teams, and three Premierships. We move on to Tom Hawkins. 267 games, 629 goals, 354 behinds, 983 total shots at goal. He averages 2.36 goals per game. His accuracy for goals to behind ratio is 64%. 1,488 marks, 520 contested marks, 842 marks inside 50, 226 goal assist, one common middle, four All-Australian teams, and two premierships. Josh Kennedy, 240 games, 651 goals kicked, 355 behinds, 1,006 total shots, which means he has an average of 2.71 goals per game, 64.7% goals to behind ratio, 1,340 marks, 357 contested marks, 718 marks inside 50, 134 goal assists, two common medals, three All-Australian teams, and one premiership. Uh, now, I'll just quickly touch on Taylor Walker, because I, I just thought he was a show in all of this. But uh, when we look at the stats, they're great, but they're not quite what those uh, last three players I mentioned were. Two eleven games, 482 goals kicked. He had about 785 shots on goal. He averages 2.2 goals a game, which is excellent. 61% accuracy. He's always been a very good set shot. 1173 marks, 306 contested marks, 478 marks inside 50. He has no Coleman's, no All-Australian teams, no premierships. That's the kicker. So Taylor Walker's been an excellent forward, but I don't think quite good enough to be in this conversation. And that's it's not an indictment on text. He isn't really the true full forward type power forward that i guess we're talking about he is more of your your lead up forward your hit up target and yeah it's a very good kick for goal but he's not in this list i'm going to read out my key takeaways from that data that i was able to compile and we'll start with josh kennedy so kennedy's the traditional full forward i think people would agree for most of his career it's been with jack darling as the high half forward and kennedy is the stay-at-home forward he's always been an exceptional mark both on a lead and contested he has the best goals per game average with 2.71 on this list and he is has you know, got plenty of contested marks here as well with 357 um his Best seasons were in 2015 and 2016 with 80 goals and then 82, respectively. So, where does Josh Kennedy sit in this discussion? Well, it's hard to tell from those statistics, and the reason why uh, because I think it's fair to say a power forward takes marks inside 50, or at least you know, contested marks. And I look at this, and he definitely had his injury troubles, but Compared to Jack Rewalt and Tom Hawkins, who had 444 and 520 contested marks respectively, he had 357, and he also had less marks inside 50 with 718, whereas those guys were in the 800s. Um, the, the reason for this, I think, as well, is because West Coast, especially in the time that Jack Darling's been there, they haven't been Josh Kennedy-centric all the time. I mean, he's a great guy to kick the footy to, but they haven't really... Made him the focal point. And maybe that's a reason why West Coast were continuously successful in the 2010s as well and able to regenerate that list a bit because it wasn't predictable. They were able to build a forward line that was, it could cut you in many different ways. I look back to that 2018 grand final, there were goal threats from everywhere. You had Kennedy, you had Darling, you had Liam Ryan who just broke out onto the scene and he was fantastic. You had Willie Rioli who was just a nightmare matchup for any small defender. You had also um, Josh Petricelli, who was a little bit of a, you know, an unknown quantity at that point. And uh, you also had, you still had Mark Lacroix as well in his last season, who was a brilliant small forward. So he, the West Coast have always had a strong forward line. And I think in a way, much like uh, a good midfielder can have votes taken off him in the Brownlow by another good midfielder. I think Josh Kennedy has had some goals taken off him as a full forward. I mean he's kicked a lot of them, but they have had forward lines that made it not so dependent on Josh Kennedy to kick that score. So that's important to note. Um he also has the factor that he is playing in Perth. Out of sight out of mind a little bit. We don't talk about him as much in the media here. So it's a hard one to grade. I think that he would just sit behind the other two though and Really, when it comes down to it, I, I just think it. I think the flags is a big part of it, uh, but I also think that he is more of your mark, kick goal type forward. He isn't so much uh, a guy who can feed off and get other guys into the game. He t- can do it, but I don't know if his field kicking is as great as those other two players that I'm about to mention. He is more of your set shot guy. Brilliant one. But I just think that I have him in third place. So that's a good position. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad. Mm. Next up, we've got Tom Hawkins. Okay. I'm I'm not really doing it in a particular order for the next two, but we'll start with Tom. Tom is easily the strongest player out of these three. And that's a tough call because, you know, Josh Kennedy, I'd say, is a very big bodied forward, but I don't think that there's a stronger player in the game right now than Tom Hawkins. I think there are people that would favor Tomahawk on his pure marking ability, and those stats would support that in the way of the contested marks, which he had in that period, 520, which tops these three. But I think that the thing about Tom Hawkins that is most impressive is that he has never stopped working and improving on elements of his game in any way that he can. There's been multiple times when you've thought, maybe this is his last year and maybe he'll, you know, it'll catch up to him and he'll get found out. But no, no, he's actually gotten better as he's gotten into his 30s. And in the last few years, his field kicking is something that's been a huge strength. Ask most Cats fans and they'll tell you this, because they watch him often. He brings other players into the game. He, When he's not outbonding an opponent and taking a good mark, he actually does bring players into the game by drawing his opponent out to a, a wider part of the forward 50 and wheeling around and, and hitting guys with a nice pass. It's very, very good to see with Hawkins. He, he's really had an amazing career, and it's been very interesting. Um, but yeah, I think he's the most consistent key forward out of these three players, over the period that we're talking about uh he had a best season of 68 goals which i think is fantastic there's nothing wrong with that at all uh he got very close to it with uh you know a 60 uh, some high 50s but that would be his best um yeah yeah fantastic forward i don't think anyone would not have him in their team and then we get to jack rewald the man in question uh yeah. Jack Rewalt's evolution as a footballer has been amazing. Incredible. You know, from stay at home full forward who is probably more concerned about Mark's kicks and goals to a team first forward that makes everyone around him better, much like Hawkins. Uh in the twenty seventeen season, he was basically the lone target in forward fifty. And he became such a force because It was very apparent that year that when he wasn't marking the ball, he was getting it to ground for the guys like Castagna, uh, Dan Butler, Shane Edwards, Josh Caddy. Those guys were right at the feet and he was doing so well to just direct it into their path. And and he obviously went strength to strength when Tom Lynch came in as well. It took the focus off him a bit uh, for 2019 and 2020. Um, I think his field kicking is brilliant as well. And that's been noticeable throughout his career. He's also had an excellent set shot conversion rate for pretty much the entirety of his career. I would say he's got the best set shot success out of any one of these forwards, and anyone in the game, really. Um, but yeah, his best seasons were 78 goals in 2010, 70 in 2018. Um, he also had some pretty good seasons in 2018. 20- 17 with the 54, uh, 21 with 51, uh, he had 61 in 2014 and 65 in 2012. So and he also had 62 in 2011. Geez, he's had a lot of 60 goal seasons. Um, so yeah, he's he's been an excellent forward, really. Um, the funny thing about uh, Jack Rewalt is, and I'd like to know actually if Matt is a Richmond fan because, um, Jack Rewalt has always struck me as a player who Richmond fans rated as one of the great forwards of the modern era and maybe all time whereas opposition fans probably wouldn't even consider him in that conversation um but hear me out because that's not necessarily a bad thing the fans the richmond fans that would have seen him week in week out they would have seen the little things that jack did in a game that people probably didn't notice that the the work rate right off the ball and just yeah those little taps down and um, if he's not able to mark it just get it to ground where there's a, a, a teammate lurking and just getting guys into the game his work rate right up the ground just getting his marks outside fifty and then leading back and as well um, yeah and that happens when you're a fan of a certain team sometimes you just see things that players do that no one really notices and lastly I think if you've kicked seven hundred goals in this game you're a pretty good player you know jack's record speaks for itself and yeah it's very hard not to agree with matt here that he is the best i mean it's down to him and tomahawk in my opinion and it's very very close i think you could ask 20 people and you might get 10 one way 10 the other Uh, i just don't know which way to go on this but I think three Coleman's, three all Australian teams, and three flags. That's so impressive. And yeah, I'm just very impressed with the evolution of him as a forward. He was great early on, but he he was he, he's become even better. He really has, and he's become such a great leader for that football club as well. But yeah, look, I said before I thought Tomahawk was the most consistent of these forwards. I just feel. And I may have to give Jack the edge here because I just feel that Jack's peak was a bit higher than Tomahawk's. I just feel like that period from maybe 2014 to about 2018, I just think that was an amazing level that Jack was playing at. And yeah, look, I think I would just give him the edge, but I do love Tomahawk as well. I think that uh, these are great debates because you Easily have any one of these three up front in your forward line. Um, is he the number one revolt? <laughs> That's the next question. He's passed him on the all-time goals uh, list. But uh, Yeah, I'd be very interested to know what our listeners think. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's it's not beyond the pale to suggest that Jack was the best key forward, whose name wasn't Lance Franklin for the last 12 years. So, yeah, thanks for that question, Matt. That's a really good one. Well, that is all we have time for on Footy Time this week. Hope you enjoyed the round of footy. Hope your team got up. Uh, it's uh, We're just about at the turning point, and those buy rounds are coming up where we can <laughs> actually sit back and have a bit of a breather and maybe do something else on the weekend for a change. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, it's uh, an exciting season so far, I think, I do think that there's a lot of teams in, this, in the hunt for this flag. I was about to wrap up the show right then and there. Uh, to be totally honest with you, at the time of recording, it is 8.30pm on Sunday, the 22nd of May. And I looked at the two games today, Frio and Collingwood and Hawthorne and Brisbane. And maybe slightly arrogantly, I penciled these in as results that were quite predictable. (laughs) Thought that maybe there'd be nothing to talk about with these. Well, I now realize that I have to quickly touch on them because I will get blowback if I don't mention these results. So we've had two massive upsets today. Uh, Hawthorne and Brisbane down at the University of Tasmania Stadium. Five point winners over the Brisbane Lions. This has got to be the upset of the year so far. Fantastic. Um... You will have to forgive me because I have barely seen any of this game and I didn't expect much from it, but I'm going to quickly go through some of the performers uh, from the, the stats sheet. So we've got Mitch Lewis kicking four goals, Chad Wingo with three. Uh, nice spread throughout the rest of the team. Uh, uh, you had John Newcomb best on ground according to AFL Media. Jeez, his improvement has been amazing this season. He, he's going to be one for the future there. Uh, Mitchell back in the best list, Mitch Lewis obviously, and Sicily. Uh, for what, what I'm reading on afl.com very entertaining game i'm gonna to have to check out the whole lot straight after this and uh yeah so just uh if you haven't seen it and you're a hawthorn fan you do the same uh but yeah look just another another example of this season is gonna have plenty of twists and turns in it uh the hawks can easily get their season right back on track with a win like that and who knows what's in store for them going forward but wait there's more <laughs> Who was that guy again with the steak knives? No, uh, Tim Shaw, that's his name. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is more. Over in the West, the Collingwood Footy Club, in a wet day at Optus Stadium, has silenced the Fremantle Dockers, 12-8-80 to 6 8 44. Wow. What a win. According to AFL.com, it was a high-pressure masterclass performance in the wet, and they were... Very hard working at the contest. Tackling hard. Discipline in slippery conditions. No fuss style. Prevailing against Fremantle's overuse. And inability to adjust to the conditions. That always surprises me. I always find it really weird when I see teams who just don't understand that the conditions aren't going to suit their style of play. And you just see them trying to play dry weather footy in the wet. It, the game plan almost goes out the window when it's heavy rain. You've got to just do the things that work in, in those conditions. And that's kick it long to contests, kick it to your tall timber, you know, just um, get pressure around the ground ball, things like that. That's what you got to do. You can't be doing this beautiful running on an ath track kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's that's just my take. I'm trying to, you know, obviously uh, cover the segment in the 30 seconds I've got left. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a very, very impressive performance. And gee, this round coming up we have got maybe the biggest Collingwood versus Carlton clash in years I mean the rivalry when I was growing up that was the easily the biggest rivalry in football and you still kind of feel that there's that I don't know that feeling between the two teams when they play but maybe that's uh, been just I don't know something that old timers like me say to build up rivalries <laughs> but uh no look I think it's going to be a really good game uh yeah, it's awesome. It's just a really good season. There's teams that are, if you're not in the bottom four, I don't think that any team here has a chance to make the eight. It's brilliant. It's exactly what we want. Anyway, I hope that covers those two brilliant performances and I'm not going to get uh, canned for not talking about those two performances. My Collingwood and Hawthorne friends can uh, be happy that I've mentioned that. <laughs> so, yeah, look, well done to those teams. Um, and, yeah, enjoy your week. Uh, big round coming up next week. Enjoy the footy. Bye for now.